Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Christina Beltran, who's the author of Cruelty as Citizenship, How Migrant Suffering Sustains White Democracy. This is part of a series that is published by the University of Minnesota Press, and it came out in 2021, I think. 2020. 2020, sorry. (laughs) But October, like at the end. (laughs) All right, 2020. Um, and it is a really interesting and, and sort of brief study um, of our thinking about citizenship and the question of immigration and migration. But I'm going to let Christina talk to us a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Christina to the New Books Network and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hi, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, so this was, um, so my background is as a political theorist. Um, I got my PhD at Rutgers University and uh, primarily doing work at the intersection of sort of democratic theory and uh, Latino Latinx politics um, alongside gender and sexuality and sort of feminist theory. So so that's sort of where my work has, has sort of sat in the past. And my first book was called The Trouble with Unity, Latino Politics and the Creation of Identity. So I've always been interested in uh, questions of, of race and gender and sexuality and interested in how um, identity, political identities are distinct from racial identities, like the, the ways that racial identities and political identities both, you know, cross over each other, but are in fact really importantly distinct. And so my first book, a lot of what that was about was really exploring the political diversity of Latinos. So when we talk about Latino politics or the Latino vote, uh, we don't, uh, sort of generalize that population as if they're one thing, that in fact, there's a lot of political ideological diversity there. And to sort of think about that as a set of possibilities rather than something to be uh, afraid of or anxious about. So so I think I've always been interested in this question of how identities and and, and the politics of identities, um, you know, vary and, and break up and those sorts of things. So um, I first taught at Haverford College for about nine years, um, a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. And then I moved to NYU I was in political science at Haverford College, and now I'm at uh, the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at NYU, which um, is an interdisciplinary department uh, with a PhD program in American Studies. So I've moved to a somewhat more um, interdisciplinary space to do my work. And and your work, as I know from you know interacting with you at the Association for Political Theory and other other conferences and reading your work, um, is interdisciplinary and you know really threads a lot of different perspectives together to think about politics, particularly questions within the theoretical framework. Um, and this is a really interesting and, and, and as I said, sort of brief kind of meditation almost on the, the question of whiteness um, and, and how we understand immigration and, and migrants in the United States through a lens that has generally been white. Um, and you're trying to tease out 
sort of how we should think about that because it's not usually where we put our emphasis or focus. Um, so can I ask you to talk a little bit about how you tease some of these pieces out? Yeah, sure. It was it was really interesting. So I was um, I had been working on a book project, which I'm still in the process of, of uh, finishing up a sort of book of essays that take up some elements of Latino conservatism. So I'd been working on a, on a project on Latino conservatives. Um, and I had done, I'd been starting that project before Trump was elected. And I think when we look back in the 2014s or even after, after Romney lost in 2012, and it was a real conversation about the Republican party needs to become more multiracial. And so, you know, you had all these people running for president in 2016 in the Republican primary who were trying to kind of perform multicultural conservatism like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush. And so I was sort of interested in, in the ways that the right and conservatives were beginning to think about um, how to appeal to a more multiracial electorate. And it was only, you know, as we began sort of seeing the rise of Trump that began realizing that this was going to look very different than what maybe the, the, the autopsy report and that plan had, had assumed the party was going to go, that the, that the base of the party and that its voters um, really wanted something different. And so um, I realized at that point that I really wanted to think more about conservatism in general, but also like what white identity was doing in conservative politics. Like I really wanted to understand like the fact that at the time it seemed like um, such a such a strategic blunder to to double down on on anti-migrant um, politics in that moment. Um, and so it seemed like a, a sort of a, a bad move, and yet it seemed it turned out to be such a successful one. So, so part of what I, I began thinking more and more about was sort of the state of white identity, but also why did, why did anti-immigrant politics produce such an intense, visceral hostility? Um, and a lot of political science literature has, in Latino politics, has talked about the fact that there's an anti-immigrant sentiment out there. And so you have people like um, Marisa Abrahano and um, 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 Ajnal Hajnal, um, Sorry, I'm forgetting his first name, but um, Professor Hajnal have written about um, the fact that there is this sort of anti-migrant politics in the in the Republican Party, but sort of the reasons behind it, like why, what is it, what is anti-migrant politics giving this this set of voters? Like, what is what is it satisfying? What sort of political anxieties does it reflect, and what sort of political satisfactions of doing anti-migrant violence is it offering them? And that's sort of what I ended up wanting to think about, and so. I thought this was going to be a chapter in in that in this book of essays I was working on, and then it just kept getting bigger and longer as I began exploring it and thinking about it more broadly. And then eventually, I realized I'd written this sort of smallish book that I decided I wanted. It was a sort of it was it was its own thing, but it, it didn't start that way. Which I think a lot of you know all of us who do this kind of scholarship that question when you're writing a book or an article like what am I, what am I making? Is it, is it a book or is it an article or how big is it? Or, you know, what is the length of that I need to say what I want to say? And, and so this ended up turning into a small book as opposed to a long article. And, and just as a little sidebar deviation, since you sort of brought it, brought it up is it's longer than an article and it is a small book. It's in terms of it being physically small, um, and also shorter than you know most academic books. This is published in an extensive series that the University of Minnesota Press has, and I'm really curious about that series itself and how this book fits into what that series is trying to do. 
Yeah, it's a really great series, and it's one that I had been a reader of. So um, when I when um, I was sort of bemoaning the length of what I had written when it went sort of past, like when it was in the, you know, I suddenly realized, oh my god, I've written this sort of you know, um, eighty page. You know, I've written this eighty page, like whatever thirty thirty thousand word. Thing. What have I done? And I was telling my husband, like, what am I going to do with this? Do I cut it? I don't want, I want to say, I want to work out the things I want to say in it. And it's sort of reached this unwieldy size. And it was um, my husband who said, you know, they're publishing so many short books now. There's so many different presses that do that. Maybe you should think about it that way. And, and that's when I realized, oh, the Forerunner series is like one that I had read. Um, uh, we were talking earlier, like Davide Panagia had written a piece, um, a, a, a book there on aesthetics. I had found a really wonderful book by by Bill Connolly called Aspirational Fascism: uh, The Struggle for Multifaceted Democracy Under Trumpism that he wrote at the beginning of the of the Trump era, and I that I'd found a really um, and a book that had gotten a lot of you know had been a, sparked a lot of conversations for a lot of us, and um, they had a recent book called A Billion Black Anthropocenes. So so it is this press that um, it Forerunners is a series that tries to move books out very quickly, um, and really tries to publish things within this sort of 25 to 35,000 word range, which is an awkward range size. Um, and so, um, so I, I looked at their series and they, they, they really run through a whole variety of sort of social and cultural um, kind of analysis that they do there, um, an interdisciplinary series. But it's been a really good home for political theorists. And I think people who, it also, I think, does a really good job of being both academic and public. Like I wanted to write something that could read like something that might be in a, a New Yorker article or something that could be like a smart, but not, I didn't want to, I didn't want to write it in a voice that felt not me, but I also wanted to write it in a way that maybe was a little less um, reliant on the, some of the language that I've, I'm using in this other book project, which is more around like aesthetic theory and, you know, but it's for a particular kind of audience. And this, I wanted to be something more, a little more public, but still um, rigorous in the ways I wanted it to be. So, um, so the Forerunner series was was really great. So I reached out to them and um, and talked to their editor and ended up actually working with another editor there who I'd worked with. Some of you um, listeners might know Peter Martin, um, who's one of the lead editors at, at Minnesota, um, took on the project and was just a fantastic a fantastic uh, you know person to work with on this book. So yeah, so I really recommend. I think and also I wanted it to come out before the election. That was sort of a hope. But I knew that the issues I was raising were far beyond. Trump was a symptom of something larger, but I, I was hoping to get it out before the election. And, and, and I did manage to do that, which was, which was pleasing. And, and again, this, in looking at all of the books published in the Forerunner series, there is a wide um, interdisciplinary sort of variety of uh, topics covered mm-hmm. um, and quite a few topics covered also. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a really fascinating series. Thank you for that sidebar. Let's bring it back to you. Yeah. <laughs> but now. That's a great, it's a great series. Um, one, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I was really struck by the way that you, you posited this in the introduction is this question that you pose for what is it that those who are hostile to migrants and to immigration, particularly white individuals in the United States, what is it that they imagine um, their country and their understanding of the United States to look like? And you get into this kind of question of the imagined space that they are considering in terms of this hostility and, and violence and 
um, and really antipathy towards the migrant. Can mm-hmm. you explain a little bit about how you got to that question um, and how it really animates a lot of what you've written? Yeah, it was it was it was the question I was trying to figure out for myself to some extent was trying to figure out not just that, you know, we know that there's this deep strand of nativism in in the Republican Party on the right. Um, and we know that, you know, that nativism has sometimes been also more bipartisan, right? We've seen, um, and then that has been an interesting shift over time in terms of the two the two party system and how they look at migration and immigration as an issue um, and what's changed and what hasn't. But, but certainly noting the fact that this has become an increasingly volatile issue for nativists. Um, I was, I was trying to think about like what they, yeah, on the one hand, what they're afraid of there, this, this anxiety that, that migrants are a threat to sovereignty are a threat to, um, um, you know, the very, the very sense of American identity at the same time though, what struck me was that even when you try, what struck me is that even when you try to sort of prove to people through, you know, pro-migrant immigrant rights groups continually try to show that like immigrants today are learning English just as fast. They assimilate just as quickly. They, they succeed, they do well. They, you know, future generations go on to be, you know, very successful. And that in fact, you couldn't, you know, a lot of literature in, in Latino studies and in Latino politics and in migration studies talks about the good immigrant, bad immigrant binary. And that people often tried, you know, you saw that with the dreamers and the way that we tried to, you know, the dream act, dreamer activists in the early aughts in 2001 in that era really tried to perform like, you know, their patriotism as soldiers, as, as, as college students. And that still didn't uh, win people over. And the realization that even when migrants were incredibly successful, they were still read as takers. Now they were just taking better jobs. They were taking slots from students at universities. They were you know, so this idea then for me was that there was there was no way out of the box in the sense of there was no performance of membership that immigrants could do that would somehow placate nativists in that way. There was it, and so and to some extent then it wasn't really about what native what what immigrants were doing at all. That this was actually really a story about a white racial imaginary that we have to understand. And so for me that was um a realization of that there is something that has to do with what white identity is imagined to be and what it used to be and what they're mourning it no longer is that, that seemed to be animating this. And so for me, um, one thing I think being in an interdisciplinary space is I really wanted to bring into this book, the things that had taught me so much, which is um, Latinx studies, you know, and so, so much of the scholarship that, um, of um, people like um, uh, Monica Martinez and um, you know so many so many folks who had um, who are who are you know present in this book Leo Chavez who wrote the Latino Threat. There's just so many important works um, in the field that have been tracing these dynamics around immigration and ICE and anti-migrant violence. Uh, the work of Alfonso Gonzalez in political science. Just so many people whose work really had helped me think, and I wanted to ground this in in the insights of that field as much as also Latino politics and history. And so, so, you know, one thing that just really struck me was that I had re I had been teaching a course called race and the right. And I had been assigned to, I was going to teach it after Trump was elected. Um, And then, well, I was going to teach it during the 2016 election. I assumed Trump would not be elected. And then I was teaching it the spring after he had been elected. And one book I had decided to assign 
was Joel Olson's book, The Abolition of White Democracy, which is also a University of Minnesota um, uh, publication. And Joel Olson is the late Joel Olson was a political theorist who left us far too soon. And he wrote this book, I think around 2004, uh, Abolition of White Democracy. And it was a it was a work that I think was really ahead of its time and really drawing on, um, you know, the insights of scholars of whiteness like W.E.B. Du Bois or, um, you know, Ida B. Wells, uh, Baldwin. It's, it's really a, a smart, smart work. And and I think one thing that I really began that book really prompted me to, to think about was that white, um, that the politics of white supremacy are really sewn into the politics of democracy in this country in a way that we don't often want to look at. And that, and that whiteness as a ideological practice um, is, is also a participatory practice for people that it makes people feel free and it makes people feel American, certain kinds of people, nativists, in particular, and so, so one thing I began thinking more and more about was um, what was what is the white imaginary in terms of how they imagine their ability to move across time and space, uh, how they are able to claim, um, you know, claim not only land and territory but also like what projects of dispossession are part of that story and what populations are supposed to be present and what populations are supposed to not be present and how are you supposed to be able to treat populations. Who are on that territory. And so I realized that this was going to have to be a much deeper story that, you know, I was going to, I wanted to take us back to 1848 into the Mexican American war and really historicize a story of how we, how white settlers interacted with land and territory and how things like the legacy of chattel slavery shaped our conceptions of citizenship. And that we needed to think about only by kind of tracing out that history, were we going to be able to understand what is triggering my anti-migrant violence today that I just think it's part of a deeper story that people might not even be conscious of themselves, but I think really speaks to what is animating a lot of this hostility. And, and that was really where I was uh, sort of following your um, lead as I was reading through the book is, as you also note, it's not only this kind of white nativist imaginary that <clears throat> is part of um, a narrative that we may or may not want to um, face up to um, as as citizens of this country, um, but also the connection that you explain with regard to this performative cruelty. Um, and I was wondering, because you bring up this question that there is some sort of pleasure associated with this kind of cruelty towards um, people, particularly who have a different color skin, um, be that black, red, brown, um, et cetera, or those who have been in the past cast as having different color skin coming from Southern Europe, say. Um, but what what is this role of performative cruelty in our understanding of kind of this nativism? Yeah, it's. I think it's a really, I think one thing I was really struck by was um and that I realized that there were these these pleasures that that were happening when nativists were able to enact you know anti-migrant practices and policies and that and that they were that there was an investment in a kind of performative cruelty and and that really struck me because you know one could certainly argue and many migrant activists did that the Obama administration had done some really terrible um had really terrible policies towards immigrants and towards migrants and that there had been a lot of suffering produced by some of those policies. Um, 
But what Trump brought to that was a kind of performative cruelty. He wanted people to know about the violence being enacted. And and he described it and he talked about it and and he kind of reveled in it. And that allowed his supporters to also revel in it and to and to feel like that the, you know, that the, the border was being shored up in particular ways and that that was being um, celebrated, that people were in detention centers, that there was child separation. Those things were really, um, you know, they weren't ta- they weren't hidden from us in the same way. Right. They were actually talked about and defended aggressively as the right things to do. And they made they produced a certain kind of public conversation. And so and I think for me, what was useful was thinking about the long history of um, of violent practices that I think we, we sometimes think of as sort of periodic spectacles that are small, like like I think we often think of, um, you know, we think of the lynch mob. We think of, you know, we think of um, the lynching of black people. Um, and we think of these sort of moments that seem like horrific and they are horrific, but they seem sort of, um, I think we don't often think deeply about how mass-based and participatory those events were. Um, the fact that there are the people who do the, who do the killing, um, the person who, you know, the people who do the actual, the actual violence, but there's the, the audience that watches that. There's the, um, the crowd that takes pictures in front of it, the people who come to anticipate the lynching, the people who um, sell the postcards. There's, there's, a, there's a whole sort of structure around racial violence. Um, and I think it really, you know, it, it gave people a deep sense of membership, those events. Those, those were something, they weren't the only ways people felt like citizens, but they were an, an important element of how people came to feel like citizens and like members of the polity. And I think we haven't really sat with the fact that things like white riots, you know, and, and, you know, when we look back, a lot of the rioting that would happen in the draft riots or other historical events, the names that they would give themselves would be like sons of liberty. They didn't see themselves as not doing citizenship. They didn't see themselves as a lawless anarchist gang. They saw themselves as very much defending American citizenship, America's identity in their violence. So the fact that that was so much more, um, mass-based and also the fact that it was something that was available to people. So even if you didn't do it, you could like the, the, there was a promise of its possibility that existed. And then, so that's all the extra legal kind of violence that was, that one was able to do. And it was extra legal violence where you were able to not see yourself as a lawbreaker, but is actually kind of wielding and exceeding the law, but because you were participating in kind of a higher law, like a higher justice. So, so they didn't see themselves as just, you know, lawbreakers. So on the one side, there's that extra legal practice. But the other part I wanted to link that to and to help us think about was the way that things like Jim Crow and Juan Crow in the Southwest, that these practices of segregation that were legal, right, until the Voting Rights Act, um, you know, we saw the, you know, the efforts during Reconstruction to undo this, but then ultimately the betrayal of Reconstruction. But really in our history, like until 64 and 65, we were in a, you know, we were a, we were a white democracy. We were an apartheid-based democracy in many, many ways. Um, in terms of legal access to, you know, voting and the law and equality under the law, et cetera. So, so the fact that under Jim Crow, you could deny people rights and deny people access to certain places and police non-white bodies, that you could do that. And you, um, you could do that if you were a waitress or you were a hotel clerk or a bus driver or a train conductor. Like it was a very mass-based activity. And I think when we often think about Jim Crow, we think of like the white and black 
um, you know, um, water fountains as the image, but it wasn't mostly self-segregating. It often involved people being able to tell people where to go and how to move. And I think that desire and the loss of that for certain segments of our population, I think does feel like a loss of a certain kind of power, a certain kind of sense of promoting a sense of equality among each other, because one had a standing that was that other populations fell below. So our very sense of equality under the law for some citizens, that sense of equality under the law was was created because other people didn't have access to it, right? That sense of like, this is a good neighborhood because Black people can't live in it. This is a good school because Black people can't go to it. This is a good, you know, park because they can't swim in these swimming pools. Like the fact that it felt, those things felt public and they felt valued and they felt meaningful and it created a sense of community through anti-Blackness, through, through white, you know, through a kind of logic of whiteness through an anti-Mexican or, you know, anti-Asian politics, like these, these experiences of exclusion were also forging powerful senses of, of membership. And, and I think the fact that that was so mass-based is something we haven't wanted to really sit with, I think, as much as we, as we probably need to, because when, when those things went away, I think those were um, felt as um, losses for a lot of populations, that the world felt that more equality also rendered certain populations feeling um, like there was less good stuff for them, that there was less, um, that the, the things that the quality of their lives was in decline. And so that they, that they were losing certain kinds of freedoms, that they were losing certain kinds of um, possibilities and practices. And I think migrants become a space because they're non-citizens where certain citizens today get to repractice those things, right? You get to, you can join a militia now and go to the border and round up people and, and, and you can say it because you're doing it to follow the law, because these people are here illegally. They're not citizens. They shouldn't be here. So you can invoke the law to racially police a population. And, and you get that kind of dual pleasure again of invoking the law to do a certain kind of racial politics. And I think that can be very a politics of domination. And I think the fact that it's a politics of domination is really important because um, a lot of populations enjoy practices of domination. It's a it's a story of gender. It's a story of, of, of it's, a, it's, a, it's a bigger story than just race. But I think that politics of domination isn't available in the same ways after 65, um, except for in certain sites like policing and, and places like migration. And, and certainly we have been seeing this conversation with regard to policing um, up front and center um, as, as the place where the power of the state um, you, you wield it as a police officer and you are able to dominate others through that, that particular power. Um, and also with regard to migration, as we see with regard to ICE, um, and, uh, the border patrol and so forth. Um, but one of the, one of the issues that you also brought up is this sort of extra legal capacity, um, <clears throat> but the it's contextualized because of your standing as a white person. Um, and, and I know it's not in the book because the book came out before one six. Um, but I, I think that the, the insurrection um, pretty much embodies everything that you have been describing. Um, if you were to have integrated it into your book, what would you have said about that uprising? Yeah, that was that was so sadly apt. It was like, and you know, I remember writing this. And I was like, you know, God willing, Trump is going to lose this election. Um, 
I, you know, is this going to, is this book going to be like a timestamp of a moment? And I didn't suspect it would. I felt like the resonances carried forward. But then when that happened, I was like, okay, so yeah, <laughs> we're just, sadly, this is, this is still a thing. Um, but I, I think, and I think, you know, I think what the, I think one thing I would have noted about it is when I, in the book, I had, I went back to history to talk about like what white mob violence um, as a kind of collective civic practice. And so I turned to these historical moments. Cause I think when people think about riots, right in America, they think of race riots, they think of like Newark, or they think of Detroit or LA. Um, and, you know, in the reality in, in the United States, so many race riots were were Tulsa, they were white riots, they were riots against anti-black white riots, riots often, or anti-Asian or other populations that were being um, under assault at different historical moments. So, so now I think when we think of a, we think of now, now we have a new language of the insurrection, like now people can picture that they literally saw that mob on television, right? They, they, it's something we saw. And I think one thing that perhaps I think the book helps us think a little bit about is the fact that people thought it was, people were such idiots for taking pictures of themselves and posting on social media and videotaping themselves inside the Capitol. And people were like, what a bunch of idiots. I mean, they, they're going to, they're just giving the police, you know, who to, how to arrest them. Um, but I think what that really tells us is that they literally saw their extra legal practices as not illegal. They thought they were acting as they understood themselves as being patriots and doing something profoundly civic and important. And they didn't see themselves as outside of the law in that way. And some, of course, we found out some police there did not see them outside of the law either. Some of the fact that some of them were members of the military. And, you know, so I think the fact that they that they that they lived in that space and understood themselves in a particular way um, tells us something about um about the relationship of of this of these of these kinds of citizen actions as as not seeing themselves as lawbreakers um, as seditionists they don't necessarily understand themselves or if they do they understand themselves in those terms in very particular ways um, but one thing I would also say though is you know it wasn't it was mo- it was these are disproportionately white forms of racial violence but one thing in the book I try to talk about is I'm not just talking about white people because you know I think that the issue of white identity and the way that white identity right now, I think, is bifurcating in some really interesting and critical ways is part of what's creating a lot of this tension right now, is that um, the politics of whiteness are no longer being held by, um, it's a slim majority of whites who are invested in the politics of whiteness in a way that that is different than it was 50 years ago, 30 years ago. And I think that that also means that the politics of whiteness can be embraced by other populations that are often deemed non-white, like, you know, Latinos, right? Like conservatives of color who might be conservative for a lot of reasons, but I think sometimes there's a politics there that's attached to a politics of, of domination um, and racial politics that, that, that um, actually does kind of align with, um, with the politics of whiteness. I always take the point that a lot of folks like, you know, Baldwin talks about this. Um, Olson makes the point that whiteness is a political color. It's not just an identity of like, you're white. It's, it's whiteness is distinct from being white, a white identity. Um, and I think that's just really important to talk about and think about that one can decide to embrace a politics of whiteness or one can try to disavow or move away or do anti-racist politics. And that's really important. And and so in that in that context, I would love for you to explain a little bit more because this gets into really the, the thrust of your book with regard to this I- identity um, and the political meaning of whiteness, particularly with regard to 
white democracy in the United States, as you talk about it in the book, and um, and both the context of standing and privilege, uh, mm-hmm. which are terms that we have some sort of, particularly privilege, seems to be in 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 the vocabulary these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what does it mean in terms of this mm-hmm. political meaning of whiteness? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've never liked the language of white privilege. Um, I think in part because I, I think it. I, on the one hand, I think it 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 does. There's a reality to that language, right? The fact that um, you know one can go to the police and you know have a certain kind of experience of safety with police officers that many that non-white populations often can't. Or um, there's certainly a lot of ways that we can describe and and discuss you know white privilege as a thing, but. I think for me, the reason I find it not a useful term, if you're trying to persuade people who don't already agree with the idea of white privilege, and my my big focus right now is thinking about this question of persuasion, um, not just talking to people who already agree with you, but how do you how do you win over more? How do you build majorities? And I've always thought that the language of white privilege wasn't that helpful because I don't think it feels like privilege. I think for most people, um, and I think one of the things you know, I spend a lot of time in the book historicizing the politics of settlement. And the politics of, of land acquisition and, and, and native dispossession, you know, because native dispossession and settlement is a story. And then, of course, like the Mexican-American War and then, you know, continued settlement um, and these kind of layered forms of colonialism that are Mexican and Spanish and, um, and have these sort of long histories um, that cross over each other is that the act of settlement didn't just feel like white supremacy. It was the fact that white supremacy was in was enmeshed in a politics of struggle and sacrifice and hard work and claiming spaces and political founding, right? I mean, you would go onto these lands and you would build communities. You would settle towns. Um, A lot of us grew up reading Little House on the Prairie books. We know what that story is, right? From even the kind of fictionalized, you know, memoir accounts like that, that, um, you know, kind of taught us to um, identify with settler colonialism not as their project, but simply because they describe people settling, you know, dismet South Dakota, you know, and like what it meant to start a schoolhouse and to build a, a police, you know, the whole kind of history of the frontier, right? There's, there's a long, you know, we have Western after Western that show this, this sort of discourse. And it is one that is about people trying to create the rule of law, a certain kind of rule of law, um, and a certain kind of society they're trying to build. So it feels, it is hard won for the people who do it. And it feels valuable and meaningful. And it's the only civic language they've experienced, you know? So if you live in an all, if you live in a majority white neighborhood that you struggled to buy and you sent your kids to school there, you know, that doesn't feel like you're just doing white supremacy. It feels like you're trying to build a life for your family. Right. So, so I think we, I think that's why we need to talk about how whiteness is implicated in that, but also talk about the fact that it feels the way it's felt, the affective experience of the creation of those spaces and the politics that emerge out of those spaces doesn't just feel like um, domination. And I think that is, is something we have to figure out how to talk about to people because I think, it, I think people don't want to reduce their experiences of building lives as just domination, as just exclusion. At the same time, it was made possible by domination and exclusion. So, so we have to sort of talk about all of it, the affective experience of creating a home and a, and a life in a community and the ways that anti-Blackness and dispossession are, are just folded into that story. 
so that we can start to imagine another kind of story of membership and community building. And, you know, but until we kind of look at that and think about it, then we have to think of an alternative or a different form of membership and community building. Um, so, so I think that, that story of kind of assuming populations will disappear, will be eliminated, won't be present, um, that you can control how they move and where they move. And then the reality that you can't, that populations move and migrate in ways that you don't control is kind of for a lot of, for the nativist imaginary, that's kind of the broken promise of white democracy is that you don't get to control these populations the way you dreamt you could. Um, and so they're continually threatened by that reality. So the, the essentially the, the promise of free movement um, in the United States, which is, again, something because it was an unclaimed continent, um, <laughs> unlike, you know, our European brothers and sisters where the land was owned by all the aristocrats or the monarchs <laughs> or whomever it was. And, and you got to till it if you were lucky enough. Um, mm-hmm that the the sort of idea of sort of coming to this open space um, that is free (laughs) Um, and and that the promise is freedom also and the liberty Mm -hmm. to move. And of course, we have seen over 400 years that that is not a promise for everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I really find your um, sort of conceptualization of this, you know, sort of, how does that promise also figure into the feeling of being under threat? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, thinking about um, the work, the two works that were really helpful to my thinking was um, um, Greg Grandin's new book, um, which um, was sort of looking at the question of like the frontier and borders and sort of thinking about this question. And there's ways that I disagree with him, but also ways that I found, you know, some of his um, insights about, um, you know, at the point where he says all nations have borders, many have walls, but only the United States had a frontier that served as a proxy for liberation, right? The, the idea that American identity was based on expansion. Um, and I think that that idea that we know from, you know, uh, Turner and, you know, we sort of, we, we, we've talked about this story, but I think um, the other book that I think is really brilliant on this, and, and this is a colleague of ours from um, APT, is Hagar Kotef's work on movement, her book, Movement and the Ordering of Freedom, um, which I think really helps us and does this really deep, rich reading of of both Hobbes um, um, and and looking at Israeli-Palestinian checkpoints. It's it's an incredible book. Um, And I think that, but I think one of the points that that Hagar makes, that that she makes really powerfully, is this idea of of sort of thinking about movement as as this practice of, of liberation, this practice of freedom, and the fact that certain populations sort of, who has access to that language of movement, um, when is movement seen as a necessary expression of freedom for some populations, and when is movement seen as excessive or violent or a threat or dangerous? And so, um, but that idea that that one could sort of move with impunity, that one, and I think we sort of forget that sometimes in all this talk of borders and policing our borders in America, a country needs borders, is that the United States was premised along, you know, and the whole, the colonial project imperialism is, is the premise that we get to sort of live in this borderless, say we get to move with a kind of impunity across, across space and time and claim space, um, in ways that, um, that are, that are, it was a particular prerogative of particular kinds of citizens. And then certain people couldn't move with that kind of impunity. And I think one thing that drives nativists crazy is that migrants also move with a certain kind of impunity. 
like in order to save their own lives, facing a broken immigration system, people go beyond the law to protect their families and create a future. Um, and the fact that so many people in the United States see them as um, exemplary, that even people like George W. Bush described migrants as, you know, like we want the kind of people who will, you know, go out there and build a world for themselves if they need it. Like that's the American, you know, he actually kind of links them to that frontier future, um, which of course enraged nativists. But, um, but moving with impunity in a way that doesn't necessarily do violence to other people. But it is, it is a kind of movement that, you know, I think for nativists, it's like, how dare, you know, this, this is the, the prerogative of a certain kind of movement is not these people. These people are the ones who are deportable that are supposed to be, we decide where they go, where they, when we want them and when we don't want them. And the fact that they're deciding for themselves and that they're kind of looking forward to a future through their movement. And I think especially for a population that feels, you know, we know this from a lot of the deaths of despair literature. This is a population that feels like the world is getting smaller for them. They feel like they have less and less of a future. They feel um, more and more like the world is getting smaller for them Um, to see this group of people kind of moving forward into a, into a future. I think is 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 enraging in a way that we have not fully sat with. But I think that's one reason why the, their their movement is so upsetting has a lot to do with this longer history of our own sense of movement. And and so in terms of thinking about suffering sustaining white democracy, migrant suffering sustaining white democracy, this really loops around again to this question of citizenship. Um, and 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 who gets to be a citizen? Um, or who is a citizen but has the freedom to exercise that that sort of those rights and privileges as they're discussed? Um, can you just talk a little bit about sort of how we conceptualize this idea of citizenship and the exclusion uh, component of it? Yeah, that's such a that's such a rich question, and I think that. Um... It's a really interesting one because the debate, I think, I think some of the richest literature on debates around citizenship have been happening in Latinx studies um, for a long time, because on the one hand, you have people like Renato Rosaldo, who have been talking about Latino cultural citizenship, and they were trying to articulate um, forms of membership and citizenship where one could sustain and enact citizenship um, in a more rich, broad way that in, in incorporated um, uh you know, um, historical violences and also possibilities of membership. And then in Latinx studies, you also have people who are just taking up the question of, should we even have this category? Like there are people who are really questioning, does the cat, you know, is the category just so steeped in exclusions and violence that um, why should we want to claim this? Um, And then I think, and so I think it's still an open question and I don't in the book really land on either side of that question. Um, I think I talk a lot about the violences that have been enmeshed in our own conception of citizenship because it's been tied to white citizenship. But, but I think that question of how do we constitute a new vocabulary of shared membership and community and a sense of, you know, um, having a share in self-governance and shared self-rule in a democracy. I'm a democratic theorist, and so I care about the politics of governance and shared rule where, you know, we rule, um, you know, ourselves and each other in turn, like that, that logic of, of, of membership and being a part of a polity and being a stakeholder in it and having a voice in it. Um, I think that's a really important element of this. And I actually think sometimes that some of the nativist critique 
Um, a lot of it is just toxic, but I think sometimes within that toxicity, there's actually a, a legitimate anxiety um, nested in that toxicity, which is that we don't have enough of a say in our lives, in the decisions that affect our lives, that global capitalism and, you know, government that is unaccountable to us and corporate power, you know, that all those things make, we don't have enough of a say in the decisions that affect our lives. And so for nativists, the answer is, you know, expel migrants. And then I guess somehow magically we'll have, uh, a, you know, we'll have our self-governance back. But, but I think that the real question of how to be self-governing in a way that doesn't, um, that doesn't get its animation from exclusion. You know, I think there's something inherently exclusive about membership. When we talk about membership, that's just perpetually global. It's like, I don't, it's kind of starts to mean nothing, right? Um, any form of we implies somebody's outside of the we. Um, I think that could be a more porous story of we making, we-ness, um, a peoplehood. I think it could be more porous. It could be more just. But I do think that, you know, if you want to be a self-governing body of people and make decisions together as stakeholders, that is still a, a critical need we have and how to do it in a just way. So I guess, I don't know if the word is citizen is the word I want. I keep I, I go back and forth because part of me is like I don't want to cede the word to the right. I feel that way about patriotism sometimes too. Like I don't want to cede these words to or family, right? You don't want to cede those words to the right, but they're also really freighted um, with so much of of the kind of violence that so many people are invested in. So, so yeah, citizenship for me is a really important question that um, I sort of point to a certain way that white citizenship has functioned. But I, I I think that's part of our collective work is how do we articulate a better definition of citizenship that that or, or membership maybe political membership how do we define a better language of political and civic membership that is not so embedded in a politics of violence and exclusion um, that I think is is a question that for political science and for politics and democratic theorists that we have to start you know thinking even more creatively about because right now we're sort of stuck in a, in a language that's not very helpful. And, and again, it also goes to the, you know, the fact that there are nations. And, and so, yeah. right. And, yeah. and so because nations, yeah. say, they're not giving it up. <laughs> you are a citizen or you're not a citizen. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it's easy. You know, one thing I, I was sort of responding to in some ways was um, there was some work in the in before Trump was elected that were very sort of dismissive of calls to citizenship that were sort of like, oh, that's so that's so liberal. Like there was a sort of. And I always thought that was such a privileged position of a kind of left position of like, well, it's easy to say it's citizenship. We need to jettison that category or something when you have it. <laughs> like, you know, for people who are fighting, who have a critique of citizenship, but are also fighting for like a driver's license and things that actually make their lives livable. I think it's, it's I, I guess I just, I always was uncomfortable with the voice of, 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 of left citizen academics chastising non people for for claiming the category of citizen because um that feels like uh, a a problematic stance yeah <laughs> you know? and and you know others who have done work um, particularly on the question of statelessness um yeah. really focus on mm-hmm. the fact that the state can uncitizen you um yep. and you can be stateless suddenly and uh, and you know nothing you did <laughs> yep read a gombin read a rent yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, yes. Um, Christina, what are you working on now that you have published this wonderful um, and, and, and to some degree shorter meditation on yes. these questions? Yeah. The, the book that stopped the other book um, is um, 
Uh, yeah, I, 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 so I'm, I'm finishing a book of essays that's a mix of previously published and new works, um, and much of it focusing around conservatism. Um, but it's it's a different kind of it's it's um, I'm I'm looking at different sort of moments of of Latinx conservatism, sometimes in the realm of places like literature, like um, Richard Rodriguez and works like that, um, and also in terms of people like Susana Martinez and other other people who've been elected. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing some, I'm, so I'm trying to finish up that work. And, um, and a lot of that is also thinking around um, the aesthetics of racial visibility and how um, the politics of racial presence is different than say the politics of racial justice. So I'm, I'm trying to sort of think about some of those questions and explore them in that. Um, but I'm also, um, and so that's almost finished. Um, but one thing I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in spending, I'm, I'm on leave next year. So one thing I'm really trying to focus on is something I've been describing as sort of the aesthetics of justice. I don't know what it's going to be called at the end, but I, I think it's this question of like, for me, the politics of white uh, nativism, the politics of whiteness is such a scarcity logic. It's such a logic that there's not enough for all of us, that you have to enact cruelty to some people so that we can have decency in our own lives. I think we see this in the politics of policing, right? The only way we can have real safety for in your neighborhoods is if certain populations have to live with excessive amounts of violence and death. And so there's a scarcity logic and a logic that is um, about domination that sometimes takes pleasure in domination or at least treats domination as an inevitable price for other forms of freedom. And I'm trying to sort of, I want to I sort of look to what are the models out there that can maybe model a form of political abundance or possibility um, a vision of the world of a future that can invite us in that doesn't look like something where we have to just keep giving things up, but that actually offers us more. Um, so not more stuff, not more consumer goods, but like, but a poly- I'm trying to think of abundance in a different way. And maybe the kind of logic of like jouissance and like so sort of the logic of something that's the forms of pleasure, um, um, a, di- a different logic of, of possibility. And so I'm, I, I'm, it's very, I'm very, it's very, I'm describing this so really in Kuwait in my own head, but I'm trying to look at models of, I think some of the work that's being done on black joy and, and different, different forms um, that, that are, I think there's just models out there that are articulating things that we ought to imagine because the future can't, you know, I think the right is so good at saying Biden's going to take your hamburgers. They're going to take all your pleasures. Um, and I think we have to come up with some alternative visions of pleasure so that the pleasure of domination is less appealing and, and that people can look and say, Oh, I want to live in that better world. That looks, that looks delicious. That looks, that looks wonderful. I want to be there. I, I want to sort of start to think about what would that look like? I don't know yet, but that's something I'm interested in thinking more about. Well, I hope you will join me on the new books network to talk about these two works as they are published. Um, I would love to chat with you about both of them. Um, they both sound fascinating. Um, and I wanted to thank you, Christina Beltran for joining me today to talk about cruelty as citizenship, how migrant suffering sustains white democracy published in 2020 by university of Minnesota press. I assume one can purchase this at the University of Minnesota Press website. Yes, you can purchase it there. And um, you could also go to um, bookshop.org, which is a site that supports indie booksellers. So if you want to go there as well, bookshop.org is a, is a, great, is a great way to support your local bookstore, even if you haven't seen it in a year. <laughs> um, and, and we link to that on the New Books Network too. So thank you so much. And thank you for joining me today. It's great to talk to you. This was great. Thank you so much, Lily. This was fantastic. Thanks.